0: Amen. Day by day, God is good, isn't he? Amen. Amen. Every day. Praise the Lord. Um, it is good to be with you guys this morning. And uh, I told the first service, and I just want to say to the second service as well, one of the good graces of God in our life is the gift of Samantha Kaufman on the violin. Uh, it's been a while since she's played. I'm glad she's back. It's awesome. I love it when she plays. It's, it's awesome. So um, I'm excited to get into God's word with you today. Thank you for joining us. If you are here for the first time, Um, It is wonderful to have you. If you're here for the first time in a long time, welcome back. If you're joining us online today, thank you for listening in online. Uh, If you have your Bible, I want to invite you now to take it and open it up to Acts chapter 26. Acts chapter 26 is where we're going to be today. And as we get ready to jump into Acts 26, just kind of a quick opening story. Um, So guys, this past week, my oldest daughter and I decided to do something crazy. We decided that we were going to give CrossFit a try. right. All right. All right. So shout out to Andy and Mandy Kirschbaum in the back for letting us come over to Bombers CrossFit. Um, Yes. Shameless plug for them. Uh, You know, so CrossFit, right? I I gave it a try. You know, I, uh, I, some people call it CrossFit. Some people call it like voluntary self-torture right? That's kind of what it was for us. Um, You'd think that by this age, I would learn to not do those things to myself, but it was actually really fun. Here's what happened. When I started to look into doing CrossFit, I started to ask people at the gym about it and learn things from them. And then I would say things like, you know, well, when it comes to CrossFit, you know, I'm not really looking to get ripped. I just want to be able to stay mobile and not get injured, right? That's kind of my lofty goals for for my workout at this age. And uh, as I would share this with people, Lots you know, I had multiple people say to me like, oh, well, you've got to meet Daryl. And I'm like, Daryl, who's Daryl? I got to meet Daryl apparently. And so they kept mentioning this Daryl. I found out about this Daryl who, um, you know, he has lost over a hundred and some pounds. He uh, got really fit. He got in shape, committed himself to CrossFit. But that kind of came about because he was going through some health issues of his own that he needed to make some changes. And so he ended up um, losing all this weight, getting really fit. And he not just goes to CrossFit, then he became a coach and he got to be my coach this past week, which was really cool. It was really exciting. But here's the biggest thing to me. I didn't know this at first, but then I found out Daryl is in his 60s, right? So Daryl's in there knocking out CrossFit like a champ in his 60s, which is awesome. Um, so we hear these stories from time to time and they're, they're really inspirational. They, they kind of get you excited when you hear about people who have done this, people who have went through a trial. They experienced transformation, and now they're here to tell about it, right? Today, I want to talk to you about how sometimes God allows trials in our lives so that we can tell about about how he transformed us, right? That's part of why God allows us to go through trials. God allows trials sometimes so that we can tell about how he's transformed us. So we're going to continue today our study in the book of Acts. As we kind of get near the end today, we're going to pick up in chapter 26, And leading up to chapter 26, you know, we've covered a lot of good ground in this book. So if you're new with us today, um, let me just give you the very succinct version of what's happened so far. In the early chapters of the book of Acts, Jesus uh, has resurrected from the grave. He pulled his disciples together and he commissioned them out to take the gospel out to the rest of the world. So they started their witness in Jerusalem and the regions around Judea and Samaria. Then their witnesses extended out into the Gentile parts of the world, mainly through the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. So when we get into Acts, like around chapter 21 or so, this is where the Apostle Paul has completed his three missionary journeys, and he's now making his way back into Jerusalem. And once he gets there, he finds out that the Jews did not receive him well in Jerusalem. They actually tried to kill him twice, and the Roman officials have to step in both times, And spare his life. They put him in custody. And for his own safekeeping. They actually transport him out of Jerusalem. And hold him in custody in the city of Caesarea. So then we get to Acts chapter 24 and 25. And we learned how over multiple years. Paul endured multiple trials in Caesarea. However, none of the Roman governors wanted to make a final ruling on his case. So Paul ended up appealing to have his case seen before Caesar in Rome. Well, the Roman governor um, uh, uh, approved that and granted that to Paul. So the problem was now, when we came to the end of chapter 25, that the governor who approved that Paul could take his case escalated up to Caesar and Rome. The governor didn't really know how to put in writing an explanation for why this was such a big controversy. So at the end of chapter 25, we saw that, the Jewish king, King Herod Agrippa, came into Caesarea and the Roman governor said, hey, uh, Agrippa, why don't you hear from Paul in his case? And that way you can provide some input for me on how to write my letter to Nero, how to write my letter to Nero in Rome. So that's where we left off with uh, the story in chapter 25. Today we get into Acts 26. Here's how I'm going to walk through the message. Like always, I just want to preach verse by verse through this entire chapter. Uh, We're going to make some personal application at the end. Um, And the application at the end is really going to tie into the main idea from this chapter of Scripture. And the main idea is this. It's that sometimes God allows your trials so that you can tell how he transformed you. Sometimes God allows your trials so that you can tell how he transformed you. Now, let's hear Paul's testimony. Let's hear him tell of uh, God's work in his life, starting in verse one. Let's see what happens. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. So we'll just stop right here and we're gonna remember the setting of what's going on. Um, there's a group of people gathered in a large audience hall. In that room are what chapter 25 calls prominent men, military leaders, a tribunal, um, the governor Festus is there, uh, King Herod Agrippa II is there, and Paul is brought in before them, right? He's a, a lowly prisoner brought in, bearing chain in chains. And Agrippa, the king, gives Paul permission. He gives them the opportunity to speak. So here's what Paul says, starting in verse two. Paul says, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I' am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. So pause for a second and just remember that the Jewish king Agrippa, he's, he's not really there to make a final judgment about Paul's situation. He's not there to pronounce for Paul life or death or, you know freedom or confinement. Festus, the Roman governor Festus, has already told Paul, you've you've appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you're gonna go. So Agrippa isn't there to really make a ruling. So what's the big deal about him being there? Here's the big deal. He is he's king Agrippa, he has a position of high authority, and he is king of the Jews, which means he's a Jew. So remember, governor Festus was not a Jew. So he would not have understood Jewish culture. He wouldn't have fully understood the problems between Paul and the Jews. He wanted to keep the peace, stop disturbances from happening, but he certainly wasn't able to understand the complexity and the intensity of the situation between Paul and his Jewish accusers. And that's why Festus you know, said at the end of chapter 25, basically, I don't know what to write to Caesar and tell him that this, uh, this, guy, problem, this guy Paul, what his problems are all about. So he didn't really get it because Festus wasn't a Jew, but King Agrippa was a Jew, which means he would have a totally different perspective on the situation. He would have understood Jewish values, Jewish tradition, Jewish religion, Jewish customs. Uh, plus, remember, this is Herod Agrippa II. So his father, his grandfather, and his great-grandfather were all Herods before him, which means if as you study the, the, the fullness of the New Testament, you start to see that for, you know, generations, for, for years before King Herod Agrippa II's rule, the Herods before him had all these interactions between Jews and Christians that were difficult and hostile and complex. And so Agrippa was familiar with the situation. Therefore, he would have been able to help Festus understand what he was saying. He also would have been able to understand all the things that Paul is about to explain about his situation. So Paul says, I consider it fortunate that you are, I consider myself fortunate to be able to go through this trial with you here, Festus, or Agrippa. So Paul asks Agrippa to listen to him patiently as uh, he tells his story. So starting in verse four, Paul tells a story. He says, my manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning uh, among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. So remember, the problem between Paul and the Jews is that the Jews are essentially saying, this man Paul has totally disregarded and gone against our Jewish law. He specifically has went against our law in the Jewish temple. And so they're all bent out of shape against Paul for this. But Paul is saying, look, these Jews from Jerusalem who are accusing me, he's saying, they've known me since I was a kid. They've known me from my youth when I was being educated and trained in their schools, when I was being trained as a Pharisee. And if they're willing to come testify, and if they tell the truth, then they're going to have to say that for my whole life, I have been committed to honoring and respecting the Jewish law. So that's what Paul's saying here. Pick up in verse 6. And he says, I now stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by the Jews. O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I love that question. Why is it thought to be incredible that God would raise the dead? Paul, Paul is saying that the promise of the coming Messiah, the promise of the Messiah's suffering and then subsequent resurrection and the hope that the Jews had that one day they also would share in a resurrection from the dead. Like that was, it was not opposed to Jewish beliefs. It was part of Jewish beliefs. Paul is saying the forefathers believed in this, current Jewish leaders believe in this, but yet here these Jews are saying that I'm preaching some heresy by coming and proclaiming this message about Christ and his resurrection. So he asks, why is this message of of the Messiah being resurrected. Why is this so incredible? And here's the thing. His point is that uh, the idea of resurrection should be seen as completely rational for anyone believing in the God of the Jews. It was rational for Paul to believe that it was, should have been rational for Agrippa to believe that as the King of the Jews, it, Should have been rational for any Jewish listener who is in the auditorium hall there. And let me just be candid. It should be considered rational by any one of us today to believe that the God of the Bible could, you know, actually raise the dead. And we're going to get into a little bit more about why that's rational towards the end of this message. But this is Paul's point. It's not an incredible idea. This is is normal. This is rational. It's logical. So that's what Paul shares with Agrippa and with all who are present there in the auditorium. And then he continues. Look at verse 9. Paul says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme and in raging fury against them. I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So this is interesting from Paul. He's recounting the way he used to live. He's saying, man, this is, I used, I used to do the same things that my accusers are accusing me of now. He says, you know, I used to be the one who opposed Jesus like the Jews here opposed Jesus. I used to be the one who opposed his followers like they oppose me now. I used to lock them up in prison the way they're trying to keep me locked up in prison now. I used to vote for them to receive the death, death penalty just like they want me to receive the death penalty. I used to punish them and kick them out of the synagogues just like all through my missionary journeys they've tried to kick me out of the synagogues. I've tried to make, I used to try to make people reject their, their faith in Christ and blaspheme his name just like they want me to reject Christ now. Paul is saying they, I used to travel from city to city trying to persecute these Christians Just like these Jews who are accusing me have traveled all the way from Jerusalem to Caesarea to accuse me now. So Paul is saying that he used to be just like his accusers. That's the way he used to be. But praise God, because of the gospel, we don't have to be who we've always been. Transformation can happen. My life is changed. Your life, many of your lives are changed. Your life can be changed if you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Paul is really emphasizing this main idea of our text, which is this, is that sometimes God allows your trials so that you can tell how he transformed you. And so Paul is about to continue his story of his transformation here in verse 12. Here's what he says, verse 12. He says, in this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority of the commission of the chief priests. Remember our previous studies in the book of Acts? Paul was in Jerusalem He's like, he got permission from the chief priest. He's going to Damascus. Why? Back in Acts 9, because he wanted to persecute the Christians. And then he says this in verse 13, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. So we studied all these events back in Acts chapter 9, but Paul is is recapping this. And he's, he's saying, I used to be like my accusers. And then God showed up. My life used to be just like theirs until I had a personal encounter with the Lord. See, when you have a personal encounter with the Lord, he changes things, doesn't he? When you and I have a personal encounter with Jesus, he changes our life. He makes us different. He makes us new. The things that we used to care care about, we kind of stop caring about those old worldly sinful things. We start to care about new things, things of the Lord, things of Christ. The things we used to love, the sin we used to love, we turn away from. We start to love Jesus and the cross and his word. We like to hear the voice of God. You know, things start to change when you have a personal encounter with the Lord. And so Paul is telling them about his personal encounter with the Lord that changed him, it transformed him. So look at verse 14, Paul continues and he says, and when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, many of you know what a goat is. Some of you may not. Not all of us have family or history with any sort of farm culture or, or whatever. But a goat is a really long stick, like a spear or imagine a spear or an arrow, a long stick with a sharp tip on the end. And if you have a stubborn animal that's supposed to be moving a direction or plowing a field or move, you know, moving this way or that, but they just get stubborn and they don't want to move. You come up behind it with a goat and you, you poke it in the back of its legs. And uh, obviously an animal's not going to like that too much, right? And so what they do is they end up kind of kicking back against you, right? They just, they don't want that. So what happens the more that the ox or the animal kind of kicks back, the more that they're banging their flesh into that sharp goad. And eventually the pain of fighting back becomes too painful and they submit and they surrender and they start to move forward. So Paul is saying that when he was, joining the Jews in the persecution of Christians, God showed up in his life and it says, you don't need to do that because you're just kicking against the goads. See, here's what we've learned throughout history and especially through the book of Acts. God was moving the course of human history forward in a certain direction. God was moving people forward in the direction of believing upon his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as he was moving people in that direction, one of the people that the Lord was going to move that direction was the apostle Paul. So when Paul kept resisting the direction that God was trying to move him, what was he doing? When he kept fighting against Christians, he's just kicking against God's goads, so to speak, right? He, this is what, the, what Paul is doing. And while he was resisting God's work in his life and fighting back, really, what was he doing? Paul was ultimately just kind of causing more trouble for himself along the way. So Paul is telling Agrippa of the day that he heard God say, hey, Paul, why are you kicking against the goads? This is part of Paul sharing his transformation story. So Paul continues to tell Agrippa what happened next. And Paul hears this voice from the Lord. Verse 15, Paul says, and I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And I just want to take a little side note here to say this. I want you to pay attention to what Jesus said to Paul right here. Paul was out persecuting the church, Jesus showed up and said, Paul, when you do that, you're persecuting me. Jesus takes the persecution of his church personally. We live in a culture right now where the persecuted church is still a reality all around the globe because of the way news and media and internet and Information can flow freely these days. We're able to have access to a lot more information and stories about the persecuted church. Sometimes we hear about the story so much that we can close our heart to it. Uh, I'm praying. I want to be a man and I want our church to be a church that doesn't close our heart to the persecuted church around the world. But we remember them. We remember, as Hebrew says, to remember those who are in prison. Remember those who are in chains. And I'm not going to talk a ton about it today, but I do want you to know later this fall, we're going to have a sermon series where a part of it is going to be a call for us to remember and engage um, in uh, praying for the persecuted church around the world. Paul hears Jesus say, Paul, when you persecute the church, you're persecuting me. And that's Jesus speaking to Paul. Paul goes on to continue and tell more about what the Lord said to him. Verse 16. The Lord said to Paul, but rise, stand on your feet for I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those things which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So notice in verse 17 right here, God shows up in Paul's life. As we've said in previous sermons, there's this divine interruption where God shows up in Paul's life unexpectedly on the Damascus road. And God says to Paul, I'm showing up in your life right now and I'm going to keep showing up in your life later. I'm going to deliver you from the attacks of the Gentiles. I'm going to deliver you even from the attacks of your own people, the Jews. And then... I'm going to send you back to those same people to tell them what I did for you. And that's what we've been seeing all from throughout our study of the book of Acts from Acts chapter nine until now Acts chapter 26. What have we seen? We've seen God show up in Paul's life, deliver him from the attacks of the Gentiles, deliver him from the attacks of the Jews over and over again. And then God would do what? He would deliver Paul from those people and then send him right back to those people. God Saves us from certain people in order to send us to those same certain people. Why? Because all people need Jesus. All people need Jesus. Whether they are lost in their sin, like the Gentiles who worshiped false gods and idols. Or whether they're lost in their religion, like the Jews who had forms of religions, but their heart was far from the Lord. You can be sinfully lost, you can be religiously lost. Both ways you're equally lost. And in God's plan, he saves people like Paul and people like me and you. He saves us out from certain people in order to send us back in and give the gospel to those people. I want you to think about what the Lord does. He's delivered people in our church from a community of atheists in order to send them right back to those atheists to proclaim Christ. The Lord has delivered people from communities of sexual immorality in order to send those people right back in and say, the Lord changed me he could change you. He's delivered people from groups of materialists who are living for money and possessions in order to send them right back to those same people and say, guys, I have to say, I found something that satisfies my soul way more than money and possessions. He delivers people from a community of addicts in order for us to go back into that community of addicts and say, you know what? the Lord can set you free. He delivers us from a community of people who are um, blind, kind of lost in blind religion in order to send us right back into that community and say, hey, you're religiously blind. Let me tell you about a relationship with Jesus. This isn't about religion. This is about knowing Christ relationally and personally. See, the Lord saves us from certain people in order to send us right back to them. And that's what God did for Paul. He saved him, he changed him, he sent him right back in to proclaim the gospel. Now, that's what Paul is saying to Agrippa here. And Paul continues in verse 19. He says, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. What's that heavenly vision? Again, that Damascus Road experience where Paul had an encounter with God and God says, I'm going to save you from these people in order to send you right back to them. That's the heavenly vision. Paul says, I was not disobedient to that, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. This is the message of the gospel. That all men, whether you are lost in your religion or lost in your idolatrous sin, either way, The call for us is to repent, believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he saves us, that's true saving faith is, is evidenced by good works that the Lord will lay out and produce in your life. Your good works don't save you, but they are an evidence that you're saved. So, Paul has been preaching this message of repentance, and I just want to pause really just to say this. Everybody in this room who's hearing my voice, I'm so glad you're at church. You may have gone to church your whole life. You may be a teenager. You may be a great grandparent. You may be a child in the room with us today. You may have gone to church your whole life. You may be religious like many of the Jews were. You may know some things about God and about the scripture. But God called Paul to go to those religious communities and tell them to repent of their religious self-righteousness and believe upon Jesus the Messiah for the forgiveness of their sins. And I want to say to you today, it is very possible if you have never had a moment in your life where you have recognized as religious as you are that you need to repent. Even of this religious deeds that you have done simply for other motives Tradition, maybe it makes you feel better about yourself because you go to church or do religious things. You repent and you believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation. Your good religious deeds will never save you. Only Jesus can save you. So listen to me. As a loving pastor, I am more and more concerned about this in the American church, in our church sometimes, that we have several people who are religious, but they've never repented. You must repent of your sins and believe upon Christ crucified, buried and risen again in order for you to be saved. So you need to consider, have you really had that moment in your life? Paul is saying that he's been out proclaiming that, that just as God called him to proclaim this repentance, he's been out proclaiming it. He's Going to the people that God sent him, to the Jews and to the Gentiles. Paul continues in verse 21. Paul says in verse 21, For this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day I have had the help that comes from God. What a small little word of testimony right there. And can you look back on your life and can you say today, Hey, up until this day I have had the help that comes from God. Any believers in the room that can say that today? This is Paul's testimony. He's called me. He sent me to hard places. I've had to walk through through some things, but praise God to this day, I have had the help that comes from God. Praise be to the Lord. So Paul says, so I stand here testifying to both to small and great saying nothing, but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to both our people and to the Gentiles. So Paul keeps reiterating that his message of the Messiah crucified, buried, risen again, being the first fruits of the resurrection, and that those who trust in Him are going to one day share in a resurrection from death like Him. You know, uh, he's saying this is normal Jewish belief. Moses believed this. The prophets believed this. They all believed that that this would happen to the Messiah, and that he would die and rise again and be a light to all the nations. So Paul keeps telling them about Jesus as the Messiah. Now look what happens. He says in verse 24, and as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. I love how Festus just interrupts this conversation between Paul and the king. Wonder, why don't you share your opinion with us? Festus, great. All right? You're out of your mind. Paul Paul's response is great. Paul says, I am not out of my mind. Most excellent Festus. Verse 25 but I am speaking true and rational words. Listen, Paul made it clear that those who believe in a God who raises the dead are, uh, these are true words, these are rational words. I want you to understand this morning that if you believe in the God of the Bible who raises the dead, it's not irrational for you to do so. Here's how it's rational, logical, it makes perfect sense to believe this, right? Here's what we have to understand. If God exists, Then he can do supernatural things that humans can't. Right? God's not a man. He's not limited to our stuff. If God exists, then he can do supernatural things that humans can't. Raising the dead is a supernatural thing that humans can't do. Therefore, God can do the supernatural thing that humans can't do of raising the dead. It is very possible. It is rational to believe this way. It's simple. Here's what's not rational you know what's not rational? It's not rational to say you believe in God, but then wonder if he can really raise the dead. (laughs) That's not rational. That's totally illogical. So don't be that guy who tries to act intelligent and uh, give, you know, intellectual thoughts to things, but then say, oh, you know, I believe in God, but this whole resurrection of the dead thing, I'm not really on board with that. Look, if you believe a God and he's not you and he's more powerful than any human being, surely you can believe that he can do the things that humans can't do. He can raise the dead. This is what Paul is saying. If you believe in God, believe in him truly, believe in him rationally, believe that he can raise the dead, believe that he did raise Jesus from the dead. And that's the rational idea that Paul presents to Agrippa, even if Festus didn't like it. Okay, so Paul knows that the king is very familiar with this idea of resurrection um, and He says this to to Festus in verse 26. Verse 26, here's what he says. He says, I gotta get my notes set up. Verse 26, he says, For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner, King Agrippa. Do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. So you have to admire Paul's boldness right here, don't you? I mean, over and over again, Paul just steps up with, with boldness and he, he kind of has this moment where he's like answering Festus's little comments about Paul being nuts. But then he goes right back to talking to the king and he says, King, you know of these things. These things about Jesus being crucified, buried, and risen again. These things about resurrection from the death for Jesus of Nazareth. This isn't news to you. You know about all this, right? Because let's remember some, some context here. When Paul is speaking to Agrippa here, it's been 30 years since Jesus died on the cross and rose again. Almost 30 years, like 27 years. So for nearly three decades, the gospel of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection has been going out. People have been believing it. Churches have been started. All Paul's missionary journeys have occurred. You know, not only that, but Agrippa and his dad and his grandpa and his great grandpa have been intermixed with all these controversies between the Jews and uh, the Christians. And so Paul knew that Agrippa was very well aware of Jesus' death and resurrection, and that he was aware that the prophets of old foretold that that's exactly what the Messiah would do suffer, die, rise again. So this is what Paul does. I love how he does this. He asks Agrippa, Do you believe the prophets? I know you do, I just imagine Paul this way because it put put Agrippa in a precarious situation because on one hand, he's the king of the Jews. So as the king of the Jews, he can't say, "Eh, I don't believe the words of the prophets. He can't do that. On the other hand, he can't say, yeah, that's true, Paul. I believe, I believe what you're saying because then all the Jews that were hostile against Paul would start another uprising. So look how Agrippa responds. He just kind of gives a sarcastic response. Look at verse 28. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Okay, kind of a deflection there, but interesting. Here's, here's what I love. It's Paul's response. Look at verse 29. And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Paul wanted Agrippa to be a Christian. He wanted, all the, he wanted Festus to become a Christian. He wanted people who were in the auditorium, listening in the hall, all the Jews who were there accusing him. He wanted them all to become Christians. He wanted them to be transformed, to become like he was as a follower of Christ. Except, he's like, I don't want you guys to be held in chains like I am. Right? So, that's where he's at. Verse 30, here's how the story starts to conclude for today. Verse 30 says, Then the king arose and the governor and bernice and those who were sitting with them and when they had withdrawn they said to one another this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment and agrippa said to festus this man could have been set free if he not appealed to caesar so once again paul is kind of considered to be innocent here festus bernice king agrippa they all agree that he doesn't deserve to be in custody But since he appealed to Caesar, to Caesar he shall go. And next week, we're going to get into this adventurous journey of Paul from Caesarea to Rome. As he travels there, he's going to have things like shipwrecks and storms on the water and snake bites and all sorts of cool stuff. All right. So we'll get through all that. But in this chapter, chapter 26, what's our point? The big point from this chapter is this. Sometimes God allows your trials so that you can tell how he transformed you. Okay. Sometimes God allows your trials so that you can tell of how he transformed you. Now, with that in mind, let me close with just two takeaways for us today. Two takeaways, two things to consider. We've talked all today about Paul being in a trial here. Maybe today you're walking into this room. You've got a trial of various kinds going on. I don't know what sort of trial you bring into the room. Maybe you don't bring any trial into the room. I can guarantee you someday you're going to go through a trial and you're going to be wondering what's going on. But whenever your trial comes, especially if you're in one today, two points of application. First one is this. In your trial, don't resist God, submit to him. In your trial, don't resist God, submit to him. In our text, we had two different men who resisted God for a time. Agrippa and Paul. Agrippa was resisting God when he said, come on, Paul, you think you can make me a Christian this quickly? Well, what does that mean? That means that Agrippa in some way was thinking about in his heart whether or not he should become a Christian, whether or not he should start to follow Jesus as Messiah. But he says, come on, Paul, you think you you, you can't do this to me this fast. Agrippa resisted God. The other person that resisted God for a season was Paul before his conversion. He initially fought God's work and kicked against the goads. And listen, some of you are in the midst of your trial right now, and you know God is speaking to you. He's been working on your heart. He's calling you to some sort of a change. He's, he's speaking to your heart to surrender something to him. But here's the deal. You've tried to fight him. You've made excuses for not submitting to him. Like Agrippa, perhaps, you've resisted God's Holy Spirit conviction on your heart to repent of your sin, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and submit your, your life to him as King and Lord. Some of you, like Paul, you've just been... Opposing the church, angry at the church, fighting against the church, jaded toward the church. But today, God is tugging on your heart and calling you to submit your life to him and stop fighting him. Listen, you have two options. You can resist like Agrippa or you can submit like Paul. Know this though. If you keep resisting, you're simply going to be kicking against the goads. God is going to accomplish his mission. God is going to get done what he intends to get done. And let me tell you one thing that God intends to get done. One day, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So if you are here today and you've been in a spot where you've been been coming to church, But you haven't surrendered your life because really you're afraid of God's lordship in your life. You're you're afraid of what sort of changes may come because of of submitting and changing your life um, in the ways that God calls us to. You're you're afraid of repentance. So you've been resisting Jesus as Lord. I'm just telling you today, you're kicking against the goads because one day your knee will bow and you will profess him as Lord. So don't fight against God. Surrender. Submit. Submit. Trust him as your Lord. Trust him as your God. Because here's the beautiful thing. When we submit to the Lord, here's this wonderful truth he transforms us, he makes us new, he makes us different. We don't just obey God's rules. We have a desire to honor the Lord with our lives. He changes us. When the Lord calls us to submission, it's not like a tap out on a UFC mat. It's more like your wish is my command. I love you. It's different. When you start to change, uh, your desires change. Your Rather than just thinking to yourself, oh God, how can I get out of this terrible trial that I'm in? Your desire stops being like, how can I just get out from under these bad circumstances? Your desire says, how can I honor the Lord in the midst of my circumstances? How can I help the world know him? And things change. See, Paul was able to stand on trial before Agrippa and he says, I consider myself fortunate to be before you right now. Could you ever say that? Could you, could you ever say, I consider myself fortunate to be in this trial? You know how you can? You can start to consider yourself fortunate when you walk through your trials looking for open doors to help the world know the most important thing that they can know, the most important person they know, the person of Jesus Christ. And if it takes trials and struggles to give you an opportunity to share the love of Christ with people in our world, then you'll be able to say, I consider it fortunate to be walking through this trial to help you know Jesus. Which leads to the second takeaway. Second takeaway for every believer in the room, in the midst of your trial, look to talk about yourself less and to talk about Jesus more. In the midst of your trial, I'm speaking to myself as much as anybody else, look to talk about yourself less and to talk about Jesus more. You know, Paul was in the midst of his trial and he, he told about some of his life, but what was the point of sharing about his story in his life? His point was to get people to see Jesus. Because he didn't so much ultimately want people to believe in him. He wanted people to believe in Jesus, the Jesus who died, the Jesus who rose again, the Jesus who changed him on the Damascus road and transformed his life. So when we go through trials and hard times, guys, isn't it so true? I mean, can't we all agree on this? When we go through difficulties in life, it is so easy to just get focused on ourselves talk about ourselves. All we talk about is our problems. All we talk about is our struggles. We don't even, We. it's like we forget how to make conversation about anything else or to take an interest in anything else in life. Just woe, woe is me. We get so focused on ourselves. But imagine the difference it would make if we stopped focusing on our suffering and our pain and the injustices done to us and the wrongs that were committed against us. Imagine if we st- chose to focus on ourself less and Jesus more and to tell people like, gee, I'm struggling for sure. I'm keeping it real with you. It's a hard time, but let me tell you something. Jesus is the savior of my soul and he is my hope in life and death. It would be a huge difference if we would say things like, yep, I'm struggling right now. I'm going through a trial, but the Lord has brought me through one before and he's going to bring me through this one again. When you're going through a struggle and your ultimate desire is to make much of Jesus, then you, you stop worrying so much about getting people on your side and sympathizing with you and understanding what you want them to understand and you become more concerned about people's hearts being turned to Jesus. And that's what is in a mark of Paul's life. He is in the midst of real trials and he is concerned about people's souls. So Agrippa says to him, hey, Paul, you think you can persuade me this quickly to be a Christian? Paul says, I would love for that to happen. Whether it takes a long amount of time or a short amount of time, and not just for you, I want to see it happen to everybody. So Paul understood that his trial was really for the purpose of telling about his transformation. He was less concerned with talking about himself, more concerned with talking to people about the Jesus who changed him. And I think that is a wonderful example for our church today. It's a wonderful example for me. I hope it's a wonderful example for you today. So let me ask you this. Things for you to consider. Have you been transformed by Jesus? Really think about that. Has he changed your life? Have you been transformed by Jesus? Second question. Are you going through a trial right now? If so, remember, sometimes God allows your trials for the purpose of telling people how he transformed your life. Let's pray. Lord, we stop and uh, we remember that you indeed are a God of salvation and transformation. We thank you that you have, so for the vast majority of us in this room, that you have saved us from our sin and made us new. And we thank you that you're continuing to change us. Lord, even those of us who have been saved, we're still so imperfect and flawed and desperately in need of your saving and changing grace. And so, Lord, um, thank you for the Holy Spirit and the power of transformation that you work in our lives through the Spirit. And Lord, today, I want to pray for anybody in this room right now who is going through a trial, And they find themselves very self-focused and they know it. They don't really like it. I pray today that you would give them the grace and the strength to speak of themselves less and to look for ways to speak of you more. I pray, Lord, that you would speak to the heart of anybody in this room right now who. You've been calling them to a change. You've been calling them to yourself, but they've been resisting in one way or another. They've been fighting you. I pray that today they would listen to your call and submit themselves into your loving hands. Not just as the King and Lord of the universe, but as the lover of their soul. And I pray, Lord, they would open their hearts up to you. So Lord, as we desire to be a church that knows you and makes you known in this world, I pray, Lord, that when we're walking through trials, you would help us look for ways to tell other people about how you've transformed our lives. Thank you for changing us. Thank you for saving us. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.